The way we understand the politics of youth is double-sided. Some people think the youth are what will save us. They'll solve the problems that adults have created. Others fear that the youth are what will bring us down. They're too quick to reject established forms of social order that keep uncertainty at bay. Starting with the nationalist and anti-colonial movements of the early 20th century, youth have played an important role in forging political life in the modern Middle East. But despite their importance, youth often go unrecognized as a category of analysis, their particular political influences and experiences ignored. Wanting to better understand the role that youth have played in the politics of the modern Middle East, I talked to Dylan Bond, a historian at the University of Alabama Huntsville, whose recent book, Winning Lebanon, studies some of the most infamous youth groups turned paramilitaries in the modern Arab world. For many, the very names of these groups, the Kata'ib, the Progressive Socialist Party, the Syrian Social Nationalist Party, are associated with some of the darkest moments of Lebanon's civil war, which lasted from 1975 to 1990. But Dylan's work takes us back to their beginnings, showing how the rituals, sporting events, and friendships of young men and women shaped a new kind of popular politics in Lebanon between 1920 and 1958. As young people entered into politics in a new way, they became not only paramilitary fighters, but also scapegoats for older leaders who could appeal to the rashness of youth to distance themselves from the violence that served their political agendas. Our story begins in a period of profound transition, which brought the rise of popular organizations as driving political forces in Lebanon and elsewhere, a phenomenon Bonn calls populism. This kind of popular politics was a marked change from the late Ottoman period, which was dominated by what one famous historian called a politics of notables, so a politics that meant negotiations between elite, mature men. So I asked Dylan, how did we get from the Ottoman politics of notables to the popular politics of youth in the 1920s and 30s? So uh, in a phrase, I would say the Great War or World War I, whether it is uh, the famine across Bilad Hashem, uh, which was particularly hard on Lebanon uh, or you know, coastal Lebanon at that point, the British naval blockade of the, the, the Ottoman Empire, the mass migration after that. This is what um, Libby Thompson refers to in Colonial Citizens as the sort of disorder of things or the, um, the turning over of things. And this was the context in, in which many of these young people that I'm uh, very interested in recovering their stories uh, came of age and started to practice politics. So I think that that's largely part of it, this, this bigger, bigger context in which um, these organizations emerged or, or became, but also tied to this uh, production uh, changes in the public sphere. So uh, in Beirut, where most of these organizations started, um, we have the, the birth of coffee shops, uh, state schools, liberal emancipatory education, newspapers. Um, that are really affecting these young, predominantly professional class and, and, and middle class uh, men. And then they are then using this public sphere to uh, vault their criticisms against the politics of notables, as, as you stated. Uh, and not just not just notables, but sectarian notables, uh, these sect-based leaders, uh, Zuama, as they would be called, leaders, uh, who are more or less, um, how should I say, uh, service providers for particular particular groups, particular areas. And um, these organizations that they came about in the 
uh, 1910s, 1920s, under the French mandate, they really weren't let into these transactions. Uh, and they forced their way in through the public sphere, uh, and in particular through a discourse of what I refer to as populism. Uh, and this is sort of the first big argument of the book that these these groups, these popular organizations, as I call them, uh, were integral in the creation of a discourse of populism as a particular brand of popular politics. So what did populism mean to them, do you think? Or what do you think they would think of that term? I think, I mean, they obviously use this term discursively, the idea of the shab and uh, the shab, the people uh, in Arabic as being different from the zuama, different from the leaders. Um, but not just that, definitely uh, a shabab, uh, the youth uh, versus the elite uh, and the youth as a particular uh, subsection of people that the people as sort of an abstract construction w would speak for and that these organizations would speak for. So what are some of the big organizations, the big popular organizations that rise to the fore in Lebanon sort of right before or just after World War One, um, And where do they, they come from? And I'll say that, that some of these are probably going to be familiar to Lebanese listeners or people who know the history of Lebanon from a much later 20th century context. But it's really interesting to hear actually, you know, some of the roots of, of these popular organizations as youth organizations in particular. So I, I, I detail seven in the book. So Susie, you're making it hard for me to choose. But um, some of these organizations uh, are more known to listeners of 20th century Arab politics in Lebanon in particular. Uh, groups like the Progressive Socialist Party and the Kata'ib Party, or uh, what is known as French as uh, the Falange. Uh, so I'll kind of save those for later discussions. I'd like to talk about those that are maybe a little bit less known, um, but equally sort of impactful in, in youth politics and popular politics. So the first being the Lebanese People's Party uh, was one group I wanted to talk about. And then Munazim uh, al which means the Vanguard Organization, which is a often forgotten organization, came about in the 1940s. But I'll start with the Lebanese People's Party. So the Lebanese People's Party was the uh, predecessor to the Lebanese Communist Party. Uh, in Arabic, Al-Hizb al-Shaab al-Libnani. And it uh, formed in 1924. It was founded by a young journalist, Yusuf Yazbek, who I think was maybe 24 years old, and then uh, Fouad Shimali, uh, who was 26 years old, 26 years old, and he was a labor activist. He actually started this uh, pretty famous uh, uh, labor union for tobacco workers in Bekfeya. So both of these individuals, uh, they founded this, this organization, and, and I make the argument in the book that they're really integral to the creation of populism as a, not only a discourse, but a movement uh, in Lebanon. Uh, they were building off of global discourses of the, uh, the disaster uh, of the war and how ethnic nationalism uh, was and imperialism were big reasons that the Great War occurred. So they saw socialism and communism as ideological alternatives to this. Uh, in 1925, they helped stage, and this was a year after the organization was founded, in 1925, they staged uh, uh, protests uh, during International Labor Day in Beirut uh, at a particular theater in Beirut. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's always fascinating to me that the theaters uh, were sort of launching points for public protests. Uh, they had labor demands. They had demands on um, uh, the relationship between the French mandate and Lebanese young individuals like themselves. And a lot of these labor demands were heard and a lot of these economic demands were heard. So uh, very, very impactful early in that. Like I said, that was in the, the mid-1920s. And uh, 
Yeah, they were largely active in Beirut. Uh, they were both, I think their first headquarters was in Bekfeya, which is just right outside of Beirut. So fast forward 20 years to talk about the other organization I wanted to talk about, uh, Tala, uh, the Vanguard uh, Association, founded by uh, an individual named Rashid Beboun. And uh, definitely uh, much different than, say, the Lebanese People's Party that was validly anti-sectarian and definitely talked about how, uh, for example, I think in their seven demands or other demands, they mentioned that uh, no one from the religious establishment should play any roles in politics. Um, the uh, Tala was, was different in the sense that uh, Rashid Beydoun's main goal was enfranchising of Shia youth through literacy, uh, that education of Shia Muslims, in comparison or raising their status uh, in comparison with young Sunni Muslims or young Maronites would be the uh, would solve a lot of a lot of their issues was was it was it was his uh, ideas. And then um, financially to fund the organization uh, went on a number of funding trips to West Africa, uh, which is is one way in which this this story becomes global and transnational in interesting ways. Uh, there were, uh, uh, from his perspective, rich uh, Shia Muslims who lived in West Africa and went there on funding trips in the 1940s in order to not only fund the Tala organization, but also uh, the school. I just love these two, um, these two kind of introductions to some of the youth organizations or the popular organizations that you study, in part because... Um, they really kind of diversify our understanding of what popular politics looked at. And we'll get to this a bit later. But, you know, you mentioned earlier some of the um, the more well-known popular organizations, including the, the Keta'eb or the Falange, you know, which are seen as sort of more right wing. So you're actually introducing us to a much more diverse world. Some of these organizations had roots in a longstanding labor movement uh, in Lebanon. They had different kinds of relationships to sectarian languages. Some of them used them strategically. Others of them denied them completely. Um, they had different kinds of relationships to Lebanon's growing global diaspora um, and its not inconsiderable funds. So I think one of the, the real strengths of the research is to show us that, you know, it wasn't just sort of right wing or fascist leaning um, folks who were engaging in this new public sphere of youth politics. It was actually across all kinds of different spectra, right? So political, geographic and um, sectarian as well. I wanted to ask you, so you really emphasize that the kind of public sphere or popular politics that emerges in the interwar period is really is a youth politics. It you know relies on languages of Shab and Shabab, of the youth, the young people. Um, but it also includes actual young people, right? I mean, as you said, some of these founders in their early 20s. So why was the role of youth and young people so significant in the politics of this moment, do you think? So uh, I'll actually go to an organization you mentioned that is more often associated with uh, the language and uh, scholarship on youth politics in Lebanon in the 1930s and 40s, uh, and that's the Kadab organization. Um, when I was uh, doing dissertation field work, uh, archival research at AUB, I was pouring over microfilm, pouring over newspapers from some of these organizations, uh, which I was not at the time really studying their youth foundations. I was more sort of interested in this language of sectarianism, right and left, as kind of you were you were you were talking about in conventional senses. And then I saw this quote uh, in a uh, pamphlet uh, from I think it was 1939, and the quote started. Uh, the quote started. And it starts the book. 
with the youth at our side, there is no doubt we will succeed. And that, I mean, it really, I mean, that quote still really strikes a chord with me. Uh, this idea that although these, or, these, these groups were either referring to themselves as organizations or parties, uh, that they were targeting uh, the youth. And uh, at that point, in, in the late 1930s, uh, Pierre Jamel and other founders of the Kadab were still relatively young. And, and even if they weren't young age-wise, they definitely thought of themselves as youthful, uh, politically speaking, uh, in their sort of becoming, again, in, in counter-distinction to those politics notables that we were speaking uh, about earlier. So, and, and this is part uh, of, a, of a global phenomenon in, in, the, in the early 20th century. Um, this, this, this acceptance globally that uh, youth, however defined, whether by age, gender, race, it mattered. Uh, it mattered in this sort of growing of post-war uh, politics, post-war World War I politics, that is. Uh, so I think that the Kadamor and the other organizations were really playing off of that. And it, it really varies, and, and this goes back to, to your point uh, about kind of the diversity of these organizations, how much they, they bought into, adopted, or used the language of youth, some much more so than others. Um, but uh, uh, from, from, from membership tracks and pamphlets, we know that young members were always there. Um, but depending on the organization, they might use the language of youth more so, like the Arab Nationalist Youth, which became the um, uh, Arab, uh, Arab Nationalist Movement, a group that used youth or shabab in its title, where the Progressive Socialist Party never did, but they had a wing for youth affairs going back to the 1940s. Um, so it was always there, even if it uh, kind of differs from organization to organization, how they use uh, the language of youth or how they mobilize young people. So one of the, the things that's really interesting about looking at popular politics from the perspective of youth is that it shows us, and again, I'm learning this from, from your work, um, how it wasn't just young people that were kind of coming into the political scene in a new way in the interwar period, um, that sort of youth politics became a vector for all kinds of new groups to enter into political contestation in a new way. So maybe you could just tell us about, you know, some of those um, new groups that entered into politics through some of these organizations. So this is the, the second large argument uh, of the book, uh, that these organizations played a huge role in the political uh, socialization of different categories of youth. So I'll backtrack a bit to say that these organizations often started off as uh, urban, middle class, male and masculine. Uh, but that definitely changes in the 1940s and 1950s with the creation of the independent state, uh, with these organizations maybe playing a little bit more role, depending on which organization, in uh, parliamentary politics. Uh, and they were all seeking to incorporate new types of youth into uh, their organization. So these organizations reached out to the urban poor, they in, in Beirut, uh, beyond sort of their middle class foundations, uh, they reached out to what I call the periphery or uh, rural populations uh, by setting up branches. Uh, and you really see some interesting things that help you kind of rethink what a movement or organization is when the rural branch, for example, speaks back at the headquarters and and might say, you know, we're going to do things a little bit differently here uh, than uh, the urban core. Also, uh, the diaspora, as, as you mentioned, the global diaspora. So those who identified uh, as Lebanese or even uh, broader Syrian uh, abroad. And then last but definitely not least, uh, women. Uh, 
uh, uh, the role that women played in these organizations and this this discourse of uh, how do we kind of broaden beyond these uh, these masculine foundations. So. Uh, a lot of these organizations, they set up uh, wings uh, for women's affairs. Uh, the Syrian Social Nationalist Party, for example, had a, a branch for women's affairs. So the Progressive Socialist Party. But then also you see this in the late 1940s and 1950s in the newspapers of these organizations, which, which to clarify sort of my main source work here, archival source work. So you see, for example, women uh, writing in on issues like emancipation, voting, um, but also you have these columns uh, that are often called, it depends on the organization, but the world of women, arts, and film often, something something along those lines. And I think this is really important because as these, these organizations get larger, the contradictions that are inherent in them aren't, aren't going away. So for example, even as these organizations become more cosmopolitan by incorporating more women, that is not to say that uh, they are not cordoning women off into gendered spaces, for example, where um, if you look at the, uh, there's one instance that is really illuminating. It's in 1953, uh, the Syrian Social Nationalist Party has a, uh, a headline that talks about the party kind of getting reinstated because it had been in and out of official uh, certification. And then later, there's a later column where you have a uh, woman writer uh, basically talking about habits, uh, uh, daily practices, and asking her women, uh, her female readers, uh, if they get tired or anxious, uh, issues that would, uh, you know, that would be conceived of as uh, issues of femininity or women's issues. And those were separate spaces than the space of uh, male official politics within the organization. So these contradictions sort of abound even as these groups become more diverse. Well, it's so interesting that you bring up these questions about sort of affect and space, because um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was you sort of describe how many of these groups relied heavily on ritual, on events, on space and on everyday practice and on feeling um, in order to forge political identity. So, you know, in a certain way, maybe the the kind of women's column was like showing the id of the organization. <laughs> um, but so I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how that worked, not just specifically for, for, for women, but for the organizations as a whole. I make the, the argument in, in chapter two of the book that uh, ritual played a central role in the uh, production of these groups' political identities, but also youth culture within these organizations. And uh, one, I think, great example is the role that uh, sports and sports parties. Uh, so not again, going back to, to your point on when we think about youth organizations in Lebanon, we might think about that they're fascist sort of paramilitary uh, training and just kind of drilling, whatever, whatever that looks like. Um, but they're playing all different types of sports. Uh, so for example, the the Kataeb was uh, infamous for its sports parties, Haflet Riyadhiya, uh, this idea of uh, actual sports parties, so a, a party of sports. And um, uh, supposedly their, their ping pong tournaments in the 19, 1940s and 1950s uh, were almost <laughs> sort of uh, legendary in the sense that um, there were ping pong players uh, and predominantly young men uh, that came up from the Kataeb 
the thought that they should play a role uh, as part of the uh, Lebanese delegation to uh, international uh, ping pong tournament, I think in 1957 in, in Stockholm. But uh, the, the role that sports played within these organizations was was huge. So I think that's that's one aspect of uh, of ritual, and, and and it shows. And this is a point I make th- throughout the book that although the although these organizations are definitely trying to discipline the youth and sort of get them ready for adult politics, whatever that looks like. They all make the concerned effort to say that doesn't mean that you can't listen to music. You can't play sports. You can't go to the cafes. You can't maybe even, you know, I mean, they wanted their their members to be sort of moral beings and pious. But, you know, maybe 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 they drink a little bit or maybe they're out the coffee shops, uh, you know, smoking argile, whatever it may, whatever it may be, that uh, it was OK to be youthful. And I think that was that was really important. And, and when we think of and when these organizations are talked about, it's often just their politics, their official politics, how many seats in parliament they eventually get in the 1950s or 1960s, uh, as opposed to the, the youth cultures that they were both building off of and shaping. So I think that's that's really, really important. I think this is such an important observation, um, not just for youth politics, but maybe for politics more broadly that, you know, as much as it's about um, legislative proposals or winning seats or whatever, it is also about producing, especially in the era of mass politics, right, in the 20th century, it's about producing shared structures of feeling, enjoying shared pleasures, frequenting the same cafes, you know, liking to do the same things in your evening off hours. Um, and that, that as much as any other practice is part of how politics are forged and, and made and that our, our understanding of political parties in the formal sense, um, not like Hafla, not like sports parties, but the p- actual political parties um, is impoverished if we don't understand them also as groups that are constituted by, by play, by friendship, by affect as well as by family, which of course is always the um, the thing that's emphasized in the Lebanese case. But I think the addition of all these other kinds of ties that are built by shared everyday life um, is really fascinating. That's why I use this title, uh, Winning Lebanon, uh, this idea that these organizations are not just trying to win uh, the official reins of political power, uh, but win it symbolically in their own images with their own youth col- uh, cultures and demographically as well in terms of these opening. Yes, and also the, the, the ping pong tournaments being also important part of what must be won. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Uh, you can't win Lebanon without some uh, without some ping pong parties. So. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess now to try to sort of connect this to the realm of another kind of popular politics, which is maybe more famous in the history of Lebanon and indeed is often emphasized, perhaps incorrectly so, in the history of the Middle East. Many of the groups that you discuss do come to play significant roles in the events of 1958, which are often called a crisis or even a revolution. So maybe you could just tell us very briefly sort of what happened, I mean, very briefly, what happened in Lebanon in 1958 um, and how did these youth organizations sort of participate or even forge uh, the events? So uh, I'll, I'll give a couple references first, because I think that'll that'll really help those wanting to kind of fill, fill in the gaps here. Irene Genzier's book, Notes from the Minefield, is sort of great on kind of getting at um, why was Lebanon such a battleground between U.S. interests and the Soviet Union 
in the 1950s and how that particularly came to a head in 1958. And then two great edited volumes, uh, A Revolutionary Year, and then uh, Jeffrey Karam's uh, new edited volume. I think it's uh, uh, 1958 in the Middle East. I forget the exact title because uh, it's new. But um, uh, also also great in sort of setting the stage of what's going on uh, in the broader context. And, and what that is is obviously the rise of Arab nationalism, the rise of Nasser, Cold War politics, uh, the coup in Iraq in 1958, all um, kind of give that broader context and and and, uh, and and how Lebanon is 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 divided between these these multiple forces, if you will. Um, but the spark in Lebanon, I think this is extremely important uh, in the light of, of of recent news, was actually the assassination of a journalist, uh, Nasib Al Mutni. He was an oppositional uh, journalist uh, writing for a newspaper called El Telegraph. Uh, the Telegraph, and uh, he was he was killed, and and uh, I I think it was it was in the evening, uh, walking home from his office, he had uh, spoken critically of Camille Chamon, and I mentioned you know this is in terms of current news, uh, given the political assassination recently of uh, Lukman uh, uh, Salim. Obviously, this just happened last week, uh, but the polarization that is uh, uh, coming around it is eerily similar to, to 58. Uh, but after that uh, assassination, groups of different shades uh, started to uh, participate in, in armed conflict. Some groups immediately getting in the mix, uh, the Arab Nationalist Youth, which I think at that point was called the Arab Nationalist Movement, uh, the Progressive Socialist Party, some less so. Uh, the Qatab was on the fence for a long time. Uh, they did not get involved in the fighting until um, about July uh, 1958. So they participate in actual fighting, uh, predominantly young men, but not exclusively. Uh, you see pictures of uh, young young women and also children in some cases. Uh, uh, the organizations wanted to sort of show that they were were diverse uh, in that sense, and that one of the underlying arguments of the book is that the diversity that these organizations were cultivating in these different spheres then really plays into the mobilization of 1958, that these organizations can mobilize these different categories of people because they had been building them uh, for decades. Um, so that is one of the main ways uh, in which uh, these organizations came to participate uh, in terms of fighting. And then there's, there's the the argument on how they participate in the war discursively. Uh, they started to, in the, in the summer of 1958, refer to their foes, and all organizations did this, uh, as punks, lads. Um, uh, those, were, those were a lot of the, the terms that were used. Ghalman uh, was the Arabic term that you see a lot, this idea of punks. And um, the argument that I'm making here is although uh, these organizations are not referring to their other as sectarian, uh, this language is coded, uh, and this is uh, the reason that the, the subtitle of the book is The Production of Sectarian Violence, is to argue that these organizations and group that describe them thereafter played a role in this phenomenon uh, that we now call in the scholarship uh, sectarian violence, and in a particular way linked youth uh, that was not a sectarian term per se, or a pejorative term, to violence. So they named their opponents punks, which is, you know, we often use the word feminized for terms that like imply that women are the object. Would you say punk is like a, a youthized term? I don't know if there's a better yeah, word for that. Yeah, I think that, it's youthized. But... <laughs> and I, yeah, I mean, it's definitely masculine. It's this idea of thugs too. You see uh, like gangs, uh, Yani, I think it's Asab. But that they're that their violence is somehow illegitimate. It's not um, It's not politically strategic. It's just kind of youthful foolishness. 
um, but in like a negative and disruptive way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is why I use this this concept and term of uh, fotua throughout uh, throughout the book, youthfulness, which as other great uh, uh, scholars have shown, Wilson Jacob, first and foremost, that this idea could be very flexible. It means it means youthfulness direct, directly. But at some points in the story that I'm talking talking about, I think fatua was that youth could be the drivers of the future in sort of a positive utopian sense. Uh, but later, this term and the association with youthfulness with recklessness uh, is being used against uh, these these organizations. So it's an interesting kind of kind of turn there and how how this changes. And you also you include in the book an amazing quotation um, from. I believe it's from Kamal Jumblat, um, where he sort of, he makes a kind of argument about the violence having been the doing of foolish youth. So it also becomes a way for the people who have become the kind of nuzuama, right? Or the people who are now the kind of leadership of these parties to disavow the violence of their followers. And of course, that really stood out to me in the context of having been alive in the United States in the last two months of sort of the complicated ways in which political figures incite and then distance themselves from the violence that they want to see. So I'm wondering if you could just read that quote from Kamal Jumblat, who was, I believe at this point, the head of the Progressive Socialist Party, if I'm not mistaken. And this was uh, actually uh, in the 1970s. Uh, so this was this wasn't speaking of 1958, but the violence of 1975. But using uh, the language that was kind of learned of youth as punks and blaming the youth, not the leaders, in the context of uh, the 1975 war. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'll read here, and this comes from uh, I Speak for Lebanon, uh, which was an 82 volume. So. It still amazes me how disappointingly immature and callow the young people turned out to be in this respect. For all their heroism, their commitment, and their honesty, the young people treated the battle as a game. They threw themselves into it wholeheartedly, as if it were sport. But as far as public and private property was concerned, they often behaved like migrating uh, migrating nomads or bohemians. It was utterly disgusting. We felt they were dragging us all into the mire with them. We should have reacted more vehemently. We did try, but we also needed these strange kids aching to do the battle. And there's so much you could do with this this, this quote. And I, I use it to end the chapter to kind of show how this language of youth punks was mobilized in the Lebanese Civil War. But the other point that, that, I, that I'm making here is a historiographical one that both leaders and scholarship thereafter blamed the youth uh, as reckless and linked this recklessness to this idea of sectarian violence uh, and absolving the leaders or saying, you know, this was this was the strange kids aching, you know, uh, that we had we had nothing to do with it. So this phrase of the production of sectarian violence is not just how these organizations produce uh, sectarian violence through their actions or through fighting an organization that's identified as another sect. It's it's not just just that. It is also how scholars, leaders, commentary uh, at the time produce this historiographical phenomenon that we now use to explain other conflicts in the Middle East. And as you brought up, maybe conflicts uh, closer to home. Uh, and this is this is something that uh, Osama Maktasi 
uh, preaches huge in his new book, The Age of Coexistence, that we use this language of sectarianism just to talk about the Middle East, uh, where sectarianism and anti-sectarianism are very similar to racism and anti-racism in the context of the United States or South Asia. So I, I really appreciate you drawing that 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 parallels relates to uh, contemporary U.S. politics uh, and this idea of of blame of, of the blame game, uh, but also the coded language that is used as part of that blame game. I mean, it also makes me think that this is a really important intervention in thinking about contemporary Lebanon as well, where the question of how to nail down a sectarian leadership for the violence that it has wrought and make them accountable for it is really very present. This kind of double speak, right? Like I, the enlightened leader, Kamal Jamblat, didn't want this kind of reckless violence to occur. But, you know, my young punk followers who didn't know any better did this and I'm kind of out of the fray. I mean, you know, this is still um, one of the ways in which leadership exonerates itself for the violence that it produces. Um, and so I think kind of getting to the heart of how this rhetoric works is is very important um, and timely. So maybe we could just close here by then coming to what may have been for Lebanese listeners, the elephant in the room, which of course is the Lebanese civil war of um, 1975 to 1990, in which many of these groups play a leading role. They become kind of leading paramilitary um actors in the civil war. So I guess my question for you is, by the time we get to 1975, are these still the same groups? And how does your story about this earlier period and about youth politics help us to understand what they became? Uh, Yes, I think they are largely the same organizations. Uh, But I think that the way that they are perceived is, is very different, you know, whether in the in the scholarship or pejoratively uh, talking about these organizations. So the the populism, this discourse of us, our organization as the speaker of the people versus the other is deployed in the Lebanese civil war, especially in the early phases uh, in the 19, uh, 1975 to 1960. So this was language that was practiced in 58. Uh, I also talk about uh, the role that ritual played in the violence. Uh, so it wasn't just practicing a language of, of sectarianism, but that um, through these organizations, their rituals, the way that they glorifies confrontation and violence, that can then be mobilized in the context of whether 58, and it definitely is in the later civil war as well. But also, uh, and this is a claim from uh, Samir Khalif, 58 was the, I think what he refers to it as the initiation of militancy of these of these individuals, these youths. So that uh, many of them who fought in it, you, you look at the you look at the pictures, you look at the newspapers, you can see it. The the, the majority of fighters were young uh, men, but but not exclusively. Uh, and these young men fought in '58, uh, and likely, uh, and, and we know in some documented cases as well, fought in '75 and thereafter. So this sort of initiation into militancy. So I think that. Although 58 is forgotten as a moment in Lebanon, sometimes in its broader kind of geopolitical context, 58 is a revolutionary year, if you will, but not sort of the local scene of these organizations. So that's partially what I'm trying to to unearth and, and say that there is a large continuity between 58 and 75 through focusing uh, on these organizations. But a lot of the scholarship on the later Lebanese civil war, and of course, that this is changing uh, with new approaches, new sources, talks about 
these groups as sort of unleashing their sectarian inners. Uh, this idea that um, sectarianism is something that is passively inside people, and then it just sort of erupts in moments of violence. And the point I'm making in 58 is, no, this was actively produced by these organizations, by commentators, by leaders, and by scholars thereafter. And this is something that I think you definitely see in the context of the Lebanese Civil War as well, uh, that sectarianism and sectarian violence is actively produced, not something that is age-old or just out there, and showing uh, the through line between 58 and 75 as it relates to that. And that it's produced by a whole host of everyday behaviors among young people, such as ping pong and writing in a newspaper, and that it's not only produced in the discourses of uh, states and elites, I think is a, is a really huge contribution of this work. For those who want to find out more, you can pick up a copy of Dylan Bond's book, Winning Lebanon, Youth Politics, Populism, and the Production of Sectarian Violence, just out from Cambridge University Press. As usual, we'll be posting a bibliography for this episode on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where we invite you to leave comments and questions. Please also feel free to join us on Facebook, where we stay in touch with a community of over 35,000 listeners and post news about upcoming series and events. That's all for this episode. Until next time, take care.